Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn how to feed emotional freedom, how neuroscience and nutrition nourish mental health. My first guest is Dr. Judson Brewer. He is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He is an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. His 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed more than 16 million times. He has trained Olympic athletes and coaches, government ministers, and business leaders. And he's in the house with me talking about his newest book, Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Judd, thanks for joining me. I hope I can call you that. Oh, please do. And thanks for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure because this is like one of my favorite topics, you know, like what goes on under the human hood and how we can heal <laughs> and how we can grow and how we can be better selves. Everyone experiences anxiety. I mean, I don't think there's a, a, a living, breathing creature on the planet that doesn't accept maybe um, zebras, according to Robert Sapolsky. Yes. You know, it's funny. They certainly have similar fear responses and learning mechanisms, but they have learned or perhaps we have unlearned uh, that they can do things like jumping and kicking as a way to release those. Uh, they're, you know, kind of calm down very quickly once danger is over. Whereas we as humans have kind of taken the opposite. We pick that up and we we start carrying that around like a big, heavy load of rocks. And we, we, we just <laughs> add add to things that don't necessarily need adding to. Interesting. So what you're saying is our four-legged zebra cousins just expel all that energy physically and the two-legged uh relatives we just internalize it not always but often we do this is where anxiety comes from so you can think of a fear response as helping us learn you know so if the zebra is chased by the what do they get chased by lions uh <laughs> not my field but let's say a zebra <laughs> is chased by a lion and it gets away okay what it learns is oh Lions are over in that part of the savanna. I should probably avoid that part of the savanna. But they don't go about the rest of the day ruminating over, you know, why did I go there? Do I have a death wish? You know, did any other zebras see how idiotic I was? You know, did I look stupid? Did I, you know, we as humans, we're unique, at least as far as we know, in the ability to both ruminate, you know, worry about things that we've done in the past and also perseverate, worry about things that we might do in the future. I love that word, perseverate. That's the vocab word of the day, everybody. <laughs> it's a good word. So when we talk about anxiety, though, and how it affects 
our brains, right? It kind of makes us stupid. Like when we get in that anxious state, like that, that thinking mind, the executive functioning part of our brain kind of disconnects, right? It does. So you, you can think of that, the newer, the neocortex, the newer part of our brain helps us survive in a different way than these basic survival mechanisms in, in the sense that it takes previous information, projects it into the future and helps us think and plan. So that's helpful. Yet when we don't have enough information or there's something that's very uncertain, you know, anxiety is all about something with an, you know, worrying about something with an uncertain outcome. When it's really uncertain, our brains go into hyperdrive trying to think of all the worst case scenarios. You know, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And so we actually burn out our engine, so to speak, uh, by trying to trying to think and plan. But in fact, we can't think and plan when we get anxious. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline. And yet... Anxiety at its deepest root, I think you touched upon this, is, is, is there in a certain sense to keep us aware and vigilant and safe. But then it goes on tilt. Well, I would I would say that there's actually a distinction between that vigilance, that arousal that's physiologic and the anxiety piece. And we can actually differentiate these pretty simply. I, I write about this a little bit in the book, but my lab did a study where we actually looked at a bunch of different mental states and had people rate whether they were open or closed, for example. You know, do, do the, does this feel open? Does this feel closed? Anxiety feels closed. And in fact, if you look at the time scale of that, you know, think of the zebra, uh, you know, it doesn't have time to get anxious about the lion. It just runs. So we share this with the zebras, you know, we see danger, we run and afterwards we freak out about it. And that freak out is what closes us down. Uh, that part is, I think, pretty different than these physiologic survival mechanisms. So when we talk about the, the freak out, the human freak out and trying to recalibrate after these events occur, Tell us what we can do about it. Tell us how our brain can be taught new tricks to manage anxiety when it presents. Well, the first piece is, so I think of this as a three-step process, and I actually uh, set up the book in that way, part one, two, and three. The first step is actually just mapping out how our minds work. If we don't know that anxiety can actually be driven by certain behaviors, then we're not going to be able to work with that. You know, So a feeling of anxiety is something that comes up. There's not a whole lot we can do about that besides not react to it and work with it differently, which I'll talk about. But there are pieces that we actually add to it, the, the freak out piece often comes in several flavors. One is the flavor of worrying, you know, so we feel anxious. I'm thinking about my patients with generalized anxiety disorder. They wake up in the morning, they feel anxious, and then they start worrying about why they're anxious. <laughs> that, that worry piece is optional. Uh, and in fact, it drives future anxiety because our brain gets this reward where it either feels like it's in control or or it distracts us from, you know, the worst feeling feeling of anxiety. And that feeds back and drives more anxiety because our brain has learned, oh, this is worrying because I feel like I'm doing something is better than just sitting and wallowing in the anxiety itself. So worry is a big piece of this procrastination, stress eating, binge watching Netflix, going on social media, all of these 
are these echo habit loops on top of anxiety that that give us temporary distractions, but then just <laughs> they don't fix the anxiety. And then they also add their own problems. You know, in the last year we had, you know, what was called first the quarantine 15 as people were gaining weight. <laughs> and then they called it the quarantine 20 and the quarantine 30 <laughs> as people <laughs> keep gaining weight because thinking, you know, when's this thing going to be over? And there's only so much bread you can make. Yes, you know? indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what you're also talking about when we resort to these um, self-soothing behaviors that might not actually be so good for us, right? The Going back to the analogy with the zebra, the zebra bucks and gets it out physically. The human will, you know, go on social media, will eat, will drink, will self-soothe, all in pursuit of some chemical release of pleasure that temporarily takes us out of what is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's what that's what we're after, right? Are we we're, we're after the dopamine jolt? Well, I would say dopamine. Dopamine's kind of been, been mislabeled as a pleasure molecule. It's not really. It's really a molecule that helps us learn things. So it's been associated with pleasure. But if you talk to any of my patients who are addicted to these dopaminergic agents like cocaine, you know, basically any drug uh, increases dopamine uh, amounts in the brain. Dopamine drives, you know, it actually drives behavior. So it says, go do something like go get the drink, go get the cocaine, go get the, you know, heroin, whatever. Go get the, your phone. (laughs) (laughs) Go get that bread. Uh, Right. Go get that bread. Uh, So the dopamine drives us into action. That's not pleasurable. It's saying do something now. Uh, The pleasurable aspects are probably related to other molecules uh, in the brain. So what what I think people are are looking for is it, it again goes back to this basic learning mechanism. Something unpleasant happens and then our brain says make this go away. So we do something to make that go away. That's very basic negative reinforcement where something unpleasant happens. We do a behavior that makes it go away. And then the reward is the decrease in that negative feeling. And what you're suggesting in the book, Unwinding Anxieties, we get to know how our brains work a little bit better so we can work with the brain and retrain it. Yes, that's the first step. If we don't know how our minds work, how can we possibly work with them? So when we talk about mind mapping, which you've written about in the book, you talk about triggers, behaviors and results. Tell us a little bit about how we as the average person can begin to identify these routines that we have that get ourselves all twisted up and then work with them and and ease that discomfort or that dis-ease that we feel. I'll give an example of a patient and then talk about how we can all do this. So I actually had a patient who came in who was referred for anxiety and he didn't know how his mind works. So the first thing we did, I pulled out a piece of paper on my desk and just wrote down trigger behavior result and asked him, you know, as I was taking his history, I started filling that in. So for him, the behavior was uh, he would avoid driving on the highway because he started to get these thoughts that he was going to get in a car accident. So the thoughts would trigger his behavior, which was to avoid driving on the highway. And then the result was that he didn't have those distressing thoughts. 
yet it was also <laughs> causing to causing major make major problems for him because he was really severely limited in his mobility. So that's any of us can do this. We can just you know, and we even put a free habit mapper out, and people can just go to mapmyhabit.com and they can download this, uh, where you can print out a piece of paper and find what your triggers are, what what the behavior is, and what's the result. And I usually start by having people focus on what the behavior is because that's the easiest piece to identify and then they can map backwards and map forwards from there so when somebody comes to you and says i am i'm so anxious i'm overwrought with anxiety i can't do and then you can everybody fills in their blanks you know whatever in my i can't lead a normal life in this way how do you help somebody unpack it repackage that and begin to function again well, this is something where I hadn't actually learned this in residency training or medical school, but this really focuses on how anxiety can be driven as a habit. So after this first step of mapping, the next step is helping our brains see how unrewarding that behavior is. And I'll, I'll give a concrete example. My lab's done studies with this where, for example, with people who are overeating, we can give them an app-based mindfulness training program that get, it's called Eat Right Now. Anybody can download it. Uh, and it's basically where we have them pay attention as they overeat. And then we, we can measure the reward value, basically the reward value in their brain, in terms of how that reward value changes when they pay attention as they overeat. And what they realize is that overeating doesn't actually feel that great. We do the same thing with people who are trying to quit smoking. We have them pay attention as they smoke cigarettes. They realize that cigarettes taste like crap. So we can do the same thing. And in fact, it only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they do these consumatory behaviors, for example, to help that reward value drop below the reward value of not doing the behavior. So wow. they start to shift their behavior. Yes. 15 times? Wow. That's yeah. actually pretty quick. It, it well, our brains have to be plastic. You know, we can't it can't be like we get chased by lions a hundred times before we learn that they're dangerous. You know, we'll we'll be dead. <laughs> true, that is the truth. <laughs> I can I can see how that makes sense. We're going to need to take a break, and when we continue the conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer, we're going to learn more about how our brains have changed in the year of the pandemic. We're going to learn more about how curiosity and kindness are the neurological antithesis to anxiety. I'm really interested in that, and I hope you will be too. To learn more about Dr. Brewer's work, please visit drjud.com. And you can go drjud.com slash mind mapping to access that PDF he was talking about. On Twitter, you can find Judd at Judd Brewer. On Facebook, Dr. Judd Apps. And on Instagram, Dr. Period. Judd. We're talking about unwinding anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. We'll be right back. Hang on just a minute. I want to share a little secret about myself. I am a health conscious, clean freak germaphobe who keeps a super tidy home using green products. For years, I've been a subscriber to Grove Collaborative for all my eco-friendly household needs. So I'm super excited to show some love for today's sponsor, Grove Collaborative, delivering a greener clean to keep your home and our world spotless with earth-friendly cleaning essentials. Healthy plant-based non-toxic cleaning products really do work and the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? 
That's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your doorstep. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and our planet. With Grove, it's a one-stop shop for all your natural goods. This saves time, money, and hassle. I'm a huge fan of Grove's heavenly blood orange scented hand sanitizer. So why not join me and more than 2 million households who trust Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Shipping is fast and free on your first order. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier. For a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.co slash happiness, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash happiness to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash happiness. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. Before we get back to it, let's talk about the games we played as kids. In my family, we were big on jigsaw puzzles, board games, and cards. Playing games passed the time on rainy days, and any day we needed a little something to cure boredom. One thing was certain, good times were had by all. And today... Best Fiends is my favorite casual mobile puzzle game with more than 100 million downloads. What I love most is that Best Fiends challenges me to use my brain in new ways to strategize and conquer new levels. This gives me a shot of adrenaline that makes me feel like a winner. I'm working my way towards level 4000 and counting. I've been playing Best Fiends for more than a year and I'm happily hooked. And if you're anything like me, you will be too. The fun Never ends at Best Fiends because there is always something new to explore. There's no game over. With thousands of puzzle levels, you'll never run out of goals to achieve. Don't blame me if you end up kind of obsessed and find yourself playing in strange places. If you're itching for a little fun, come join me for a good time. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's get back to the conversation. And we're back exploring emotional freedom, how neuroscience and nutrition can nourish our mental health. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Judson Brewer. So Judd, let's go back to the year Honest Horribles, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) we've had this year of, of completely upending life as we know it, and our brains have changed as a result of a, a year of living differently, and that's being nice. Yes, I guess one way you could look at that is a, a year of living anxiously. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and that you know that really comes even BC, you know, before COVID nineteen, which seems like ancient history. Uh, there was a rise in anxiety. Anxiety was going up across, you know, at least in the United States. Oh, for five years. Huge, <laughs> yeah. Yes. We, 
<laughs> yes. And a lot of that, when we saw this huge spike in this last year, a lot of that has to do with really these basic survival mechanisms of our brains. You know, you can think of our stomach rumbling saying, hey, go get some food. You're hungry. Well, our brain rumbles in the same way when there is uncertainty. You can think of our ancestors out on the savanna. If they go out into a new territory that they haven't mapped out yet, they don't know if there's danger there. So that uncertainty drives them to get information, to map that out. And then once they learn it's either safe or dangerous, they can either go back there or avoid it. And then they become comfortable. You know, they, that, um, they extend that part of the savanna into their comfort zone, so, so to speak, because it's been mapped. So when there's a lot of uncertainty, our brains really go off the rails trying to find information. And one piece here is, for some reason, we've kind of learned to go on social media to get information, whether it's our Twitter feeds or whatever. <laughs> and while there can be information that's helpful out there, there's a whole lot of information that is either opinion or stilted or even you know, intentionally misleading. And so we have to sort through all of that information to try to make sense of it. And you know, in ancient times, there was no such thing as a, a as a deep fake saber toothed tiger. You know, it was it was either it was real and you ran. So here, you know, we don't have to look at the opinion blogs in terms of whether saber toothed tigers will actually eat people or not. You know, um, in modern day, we have to, we, you know, we have to try to sort through the information ourselves. We have to become an expert in everything, which we can't possibly do. And so that really just overheats our brains as well. So, you know, our survival brains go online, try to get information. And yet all it's either too much information or they can't tell what is what's worth believing or not. And then we just spin out into more anxiety. On top of that, there's a ton of uncertainty. You can it's not just things physically related like virus related, but it's economy, it's schools, it's you know environment, it's all these things added to it. And so how has our brain like changed? I mean, physically, how has it changed and, and what to do about it? Is it we're just in that constant state of fear and panic? So it's just drip, 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 drip. And sort of the train has left the station and we can't reel it back. Or how, how do we how do we sort of calm our systems down? Yeah, the, the good news is our brains are very plastic. So as 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 quickly as we can learn something, we can unlearn it. And this really relies on how our brains, understanding how our brains work. So I write a lot about this in the book. It's really based on how rewarding a behavior is. So for, you know, as I mentioned, some of this work with, uh, with eating and smoking, we can apply this to anxiety as well. For example, if we are in this habit of worrying, you know, maybe we see something uncertain, we start worrying, oh, is this going to apply to me? Is this true? Is this whatever? Is this dangerous? Basically, we can ask ourselves, is this worrying, solving the problem, keeping my family safe, helping me in any way? Uh, the general answer is no, but it's not an intellectual question that we're asking here. It's really feeling into our direct experience and seeing what is this doing? And I, I summarize that for my patients for, and for folks in, in reading the book. Basically, it's asking one simple question. What am I getting from this? Right? Not the so, reward, the ultimate yes. reward from the behavior. Yes. Yes. And if it's not rewarding, then our brains will start to become disenchanted with it, whether it's stress eating, worrying, procrastinating, whatever. Aha. Uh -huh. uh, this is like the aha moment. If we can just slow our role enough to ask this question, I guess at least, what did you say, 16 times? 
I, I, 10 to 10 to 15 times. Yes. Right. You could, the, to be safe, at least 16. But it really depends on how much somebody is paying attention. The sooner we, the more closely we pay attention every single time, the more quickly our brain will learn it. So in the case of, let's say, substance abuse addictions, you know, how do we get patients, clients, loved ones who some have been in, over imbibing in the past year to um, take a look at that? Well, uh, funny you mentioned that because I actually I write about one of my patients in my clinic uh, who was in, in the book uh, who was referred to me for anxiety, but it turned actually he was referred to me for uh, alcohol use disorder. And it turned out that he, his primary issue was anxiety. So the first thing that I had him do was map out his habits around al- around drinking. And it was basically he would get anxious, he would drink. And then, you know, he would basically numb himself or he'd avoid those anxious feelings. Yet, you know, he'd drink a lot at night and then the next morning he'd have a hangover. He'd feel even more anxious because he hadn't gotten his work done and, and could the first thing we did was help him start to see that process. And in fact, he went, he quit drinking once he realized what the issue was because, you know, he's thinking, he realized that this drinking wasn't actually fixing his anxiety and he needed to address the anxiety. This is very powerful to me, like what you're just describing, that if we can get people we love and care about and work with to see that they actually have more power over themselves, not the external, but over themselves and their own reactions, everybody stands a fighting chance of of managing and soothing their anxiety. Yes. We often spend a lot of energy trying to change the world or external things that we have no control over. The only thing we have control over is our own, is ourselves. And the best way to get control over ourselves is not through willpower, as much as we'd like to believe that willpower is that muscle. It's more (laughs) myth than muscle. Yeah, Uh, It's really about just bringing awareness in and helping our brains see very clearly what we're getting from our behaviors. And then we start to say, you know, to our, our brains start to say to themselves, do you really want to do that? You know, it's not really helping. Yeah. It's, it's creating a whole lot more trouble than ultimately mm-hmm. it's worth. And is it really taking, putting, putting oneself back in that comfort zone, right? Because we're, we're seeking not to leave the comfort zone. Yes, absolutely. And the irony here is we can actually, <laughs> we can tap into the same reward-based learning system and start to use the power of it to help us unlearn these old behaviors. And you're, you're actually touching on a piece of this, which is um, learning to be comfortable with the discomfort. So instead of, you know, staying in our comfort zone all the time to the point where every time we venture out, we freak out and we go into our panic zone, can we actually start to view that panic zone differently and view it as a growth zone? And that's another way of looking at this past year. For some people, they have viewed the year as the growth zone. For others, they've been in a constant state of panic for months. Yes. I I like this. I like this because it really does empower us to be the boss of our own lives. Yes. And and really, the key ingredient here is not something exotic. It's simply awareness, 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 awareness. I, I, it is very, very simple. And, you know, practice makes permanent or maybe there's no state, there is no state of permanence, but it makes the shift, the state of, 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 of shift 
uh, a permanent um, reality, right? You can move from that uh, that high anxiety state to being, you know, somebody who lives with appropriately anxious moments. Yes. And in fact, what our brains will do consistently is always move toward things that are more rewarding. So in the third part of the book, I talk about what's called the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And in fact, there is a more rewarding aspect of experience that we can all tap into ourselves that actually helps us move into the growth zone. It's curiosity. You mentioned, and this has got my full attention, curiosity (laughs) and kindness are the neurological antithesis to anxiety. I want to repeat that because that is pretty freaking powerful, right? <laughs> Curiosity and kindness are the neurological antithesis to anxiety. And some people say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, I'm supposed to be nice to myself when, <laughs> when I'm feeling <laughs> like I'm out of control. Yes. So this isn't about platitudes or, you know, kind of, you know, just thinking positive thoughts. Um, right. You know, that's what, what I love about positive psychology. It's about finding things that are naturally, you know, uplifting and not manufacturing things because our brains, you know, it's hard. It, it's a little hubristic to think that we can outthink our brains. <laughs> <laughs> that's you funny. Know, Really funny. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, our brains know best and they, they do. My lab did a study where we looked at a bunch of different mental states to see which ones were more most rewarding, let's say. And it's probably a no brainer to for anybody listening to think of their own experience. So anxiety feels much worse than curiosity. And so here we can actually hack the process. We can turn when we're anxious, we can get curious about what anxiety feels like. And one of the pieces here, another thing that we looked at was, you know, do these mental states feel a certain way? Is there a common language that we can all look at, uh, touch in on from our own perspective? And there is simply put, anxiety feels closed and contracted and curiosity feels open and expanded. And you can't be closed and open at the same time. So if we're closed down in anxiety, all balled up in a tight little ball of anxiety, we can actually get curious. And that starts to open it up right in that moment. Which brings me to mindfulness and meditation and a different way of viewing this type of practice. Because you you write that meditation is nice, but you don't need to practice it to reap its benefits. And I think this is where you're going with this. Yes. Yes. Some of my lab's research. So we did a study with uh, smoking and used mindfulness training to help people quit smoking. We got the five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment <laughs> with, wow. in this study. Yes. And in fact, I'll mention, you know, we even have studied app-based mindfulness training programs. We even have one for anxiety called unwinding anxiety that anybody can download. And we did a study with it where we found we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians. We got a 67% reduction reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So we, from our own, my own lab's research, we can see that this is, this can actually be true. And what we found from some of those studies was what I call short moments many times. So when somebody is in the throes of a cigarette craving, for example, they can learn to bring a moment of awareness in and notice, oh, there's a thought, there's a body sensation, there's an emotion. 
and that these things that they are not their thoughts, they are not their emotions, yeah. they are not their body sensations. And by doing this, they can ride out these cravings. And so these short moments in context can really help us change behaviors right you know, in vivo, right, right in those contexts as compared to, you know, I have a craving or uh, for a cigarette. And I, what do I do if I'm on the highway? I pull over and pull out my meditation mat and start meditating on the side of the highway. <laughs> you know, not very practical. <laughs> I want to go on and on, but we've run out of time. So I hope you will come back and continue this conversation because I could do this with you all day long. I mean, there's so many well, so many little forks I'd like to, or, or, or alleyways I'd like to go down and, and talk about with you, you know? So I would be happy to. So anytime, come back, <laughs> <Game> on. <laughs> come back and, and unwind anxiety here again on harvesting happiness to learn more about Dr. J Judson Brewer's work. Please visit drjud.com. Again, that's drjud.com slash mind mapping to find that freebie PDF to kind of get a glimpse into your own human hood. And then on Twitter, you can find him at Judd Brewer on Facebook at Dr. Judd apps and on Instagram, Dr. Period Judd. Thank you. I mean, really, this was phenomenal. I mean, the, uh, you give us hope and you give us power through, through what you write and what you're teaching us. So thank you. That's my pleasure. We're going to take a brief pause and we'll be right back. That's a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. back continuing our exploration of feeding emotional freedom how neuroscience and nutrition can help nourish our mental health my next guest is professor julia j rucklidge is a professor of clinical psychology at the university of canterbury over the last decade she's been running clinical trials investigating the role of broad spectrum micronutrients in the treatment of mental illness and recently developed an international free online course for the public on nutrition and mental health. She's written a book, The Better Brain, Overcoming Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition. Julia, thanks for joining me on the show. I am really, really excited to talk with you about this subject. I am also delighted to talk about this work with you, Lisa. We've been through a lot. The world has been through a lot in the last year. And I think for me, in my view, one of the silver linings of all of this is that perhaps we each possess a little bit more empathy and compassion for the value that people who have mental health challenges experience. Absolutely. Yes. I think that well, what we're recognizing is that more and more people are struggling with mental health issues as a consequence of the COVID environment and mm -hmm. being locked up for so long and even experiencing COVID and the long-term issues associated with that or, or having a family member get sick or even die will have huge consequences on the mental health of the population. Well, it's, it's a trauma that everybody can relate mm -hmm. to because I think the statistic is one in three of us will have lost somebody, know somebody or mm -hmm. have lost somebody to COVID. Oh, I know it's huge. It's absolutely it's huge. huge. And so we need to know how to build up our, what I'd like to call our mental resilience to cope with this onslaught 
of challenges that we're all experiencing. And when you contrast dealing with trauma for the average person in the world versus how America, the United States, typically treats trauma, we are a a heavily pharmacologically based society here. So the belief is that, oh, we'll just write a pill for that, write a prescription Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. And what I know from my own work and, and your work and reading work of others is there's another way to manage our mental health through lifestyle interventions, including but not limited to what we consume. Exactly. And so if I can dive in and start talking about what's dive. in our book and what our message is. Yes. And the, and just to just to let your listeners know is that this was co-written with my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, who um, is at the University of Calgary, which is where I did my PhD. So this is a joint effort. So to dive in is that what I, what we really have noticed based on the research that I've, you know, we've both been involved in over the last over a decade uh, is that We've been doing research that's been looking at the effects of giving people additional minerals and vitamins or micronutrients in a pill form to people who are struggling with mental health issues. And what we've, and we do these in very controlled ways. We compare the, the, the nutrients to placebo. And what we've observed time over time is that the micronutrients outperform the placebo, which means that the the fact that people are getting better in our clinical trials isn't just due to that feel-good, being-looked-after effect, that it's something in addition to that that is seem that we can really only explain by the additional nutrients. And so that got me thinking about, well, if we can if we're having such an impact, a positive impact on people's mental health, and this is this is like stress, ADHD, uh, low mood, feeling anxiety, uh, poor sleep. Those are the types of things that we've been studying. Is that if you can see these uh, ch- these huge changes, why is it? What's happening? Why is it that people are benefiting from additional minerals and vitamins? And so the fundamental thing is that well, they're not getting it from their food. There's mm. something missing. They aren't adequately nourished by the food that they've been eating. And so that suggests to me is that what's happening is that we have lost our nutritional resilience, the resilience that's conferred to us by having a full tank of gas. That is, you know, making sure that you're giving your brain what it needs in order to be able to operate and to, you know, be reactive and to cope with what the environment is going to hit you with. And is this because the quality of the food has diminished over time? Like, in other words, the soil Mm -hmm. is not as nutrient rich as it once was, or is it because the average person is not consuming enough nutrient rich food or both? yeah, I think it's both. I think we've we go into quite a bit of detail in the book about the the changes in our uh, food production. And so we have a lot of mouths to feed. We have you know over seven billion people to feed in the world. And so we've had to do a lot of cutting, you know, cross uh, you know 
methods to try to ensure that we can grow crops really quickly, for example. And so we select crops that grow quickly. But when you do that, you reduce the opportunity of the plant to get the minerals out of the soil. And so the minerals are essential for the plant to make vitamins. And so then you end up with a plant that you may think is going to be nourishing because we're always told to eat your fruits and vegetables and (laughs) that kind of thing. But maybe that plant is less nourishing is less nourishing to you or less nutrient dense than it used to be when we allowed the plants to grow in their natural and you know under natural conditions now we accelerate growth we use glyphosate or roundup on our crops to try that they they help the plants grow faster so all of those environmental changes to how we're selecting our food could really be having an impact on our plant and i say could in fact, there's data to show that the soils are a lot more nutrient uh, depleted than they than they should be relative to ideal. So there's that. And then what you also suggest is that we're also eating uh, less nourishing food as well. And that's uh, absolutely clear based on the data. If you look at uh, North American data, American and Canadian, you see that the average American is their their diet is consists of 50% of their calories comes from ultra processed food mm. and only less than 20%. So 20% is an, you know, is pushing it less than 20% of the American population is hitting their fruit and vegetable um, minimal daily intake. So when you put those two things together, you kind of go, okay, we've got plants that are less nourishing, and we're not eating enough of them anyway. And we're eating foods that are ultra processed, that are known to be depleted in these essential vitamins and minerals that our brain needs to be resilient. And so you put that together and you kind of go, this is a recipe for disaster. And no wonder we are having so many challenges when we're all faced with uh, huge uncertainty and, uh, you know, uh, difficulties in our lives. Let me just jump in here and ask you a couple of questions. Um, I wanted to touch upon uh, vertical farming or hydroponic farming, indoor farming, and Mm -hmm. the effects of that on um, the nutrition of the, the plants and fruits and vegetables that we're eating. Right. I don't, that's something that I don't know specifically around if whether or not that's making it more nutrient dense. Do you, do you know that, Lisa? I don't. That's why, that's why that. I'm asking, is, yeah. it, is there a reduction or improvement in nutrition density? That was my first question. And then um, my second question, which is now just flown out the window, but it will come back. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's, life is like that. To specifically tell us some of these micronutrients that contribute sure. to resiliency and strong mental health. Sure. So the, the the strong message that we have in our book is that there's no special nutrient. And I'm often asked, well, you know, what nutrients should I be taking in order to sleep better or to have less anxiety? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of information out on the internet that if you just take magnesium, you're going to feel better, or if you just take some zinc, you'll feel better. And in fact, what if you look at if you look at it from the perspective of the science and the biology and the biochemistry, you realize that there isn't a special nutrient. They're all required in combination together to be consumed together in order to be able to provide all of the ingredients for your brain to make the chemicals that it needs to say regulate your mood or regulate your anxiety. And those are things like that your listeners are probably familiar with, which is um, things like serotonin. 
dopamine, uh, which we know is a mood is involved in mood regulation, or your dopamine, which we know can can influence whether you're impulsive or not, or or help with your concentration. So those very important neurotransmitters that we're familiar with, your brain can't make them very well if you don't give it the ingredients it needs, and those ingredients, in part are your vitamins and minerals. So that is your B6 or your thiamine or your vitamin D and and vitamin C and zinc, et cetera, but all of them. So there's about 15 minerals and about 15 vitamins that have been deemed to be essential. It may be more, um, but that's about what we, where we're at at this stage to recognize that we need to get at least those in our body. And that's based, that's the research that I've been doing is giving those essential nutrients and observing whether or not that has a positive effect on mental health issues. So is the idea that we supplement or is the idea that Mm. we remake our, uh, our, pantries and our refrigerators and fill them with the things that give these nutrients. Absolutely. So the the message that that I I'm giving based on our research that's been done on supplements is food first. So let and that's based on the data is that not enough people are eating good food. So let's start there. And it, this will not only be good for your mental health, it'll be good for your physical health too. So there's no there's no downside to this. And that is re- reducing or even I would say eliminating your consumption of ultra processed foods. Mm. So those are the things that's and that take that takes up to over two-thirds or even more of the products that are sold in supermarkets. So they're everywhere. They're in your, your um, gas stations, your petrol stations, and your, uh, you know, all your, your dairies. What's that? Um, I'm, I've lived here too long. <laughs> you know, like your, the, the ice cream the, shops. Those the ice cream, not even, not just the ice cream store, the stores where you just, oh, 7-Eleven, like a 7-Eleven kind of store. Those types of stores, they're full of ultra-processed food. You don't get a lot of whole real foods in those types of environments or shopping environments or food swamps. So uh, so the first thing would be to reduce that consumption of those ultra-processed foods and then increase, of course, your consumption of real whole foods. So that would be, uh, you know, w- the best research on what's the best diet for your brain has been on the Mediterranean diet. Yes. And so as much as you can align yourself with that, and that's just increasing your fruits and vegetables. Uh, and I would say in season, eat in season if you can. They tend to be cheaper and fresher. Uh, you would be go with your increasing your nuts, your legumes, your beans, uh, your chickpeas, your um, fish is really good for your brain and your mental health. And uh, reduce your consumption of your takeaways and your that ultra processed uh, stuff that you can purchase in most places, um, probably within a stone's throw away of your home. Let's hang on one sec. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but we need to take a pause. So I want to send our listeners over to canterbury.ac.nz. So this is at Canterbury in New Zealand, University of Canterbury. And your profile is there to learn more about you. You can also connect with Dr. Julia Rucklidge on Twitter at Julia Rucklidge, on Facebook at Mental Health and Nutrition. And the free online course, is that living on the university site or is that living? No, no, no. It's on the edX platform. So EDX platform. And if you go in there and you type in my name or if you type in Mental Health Nutrition, you'll be able to find it. Wonderful. And the book we're talking about today is Professor Julia J. Rucklidge's The Better Brain, Overcoming Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition. Here comes a brief pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? 
Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Professor Julia J. Rutledge and myself are talking about feeding emotional freedom, how neuroscience and nutrition can nourish mental health. Let's get back to the conversation. So Julia, in the prior segment, you were talking about the importance of the Mediterranean diet as a one way or the best way to achieve all of the nutrients that we should be consuming. Absolutely. And um, just to let your listeners know is that there's been a lot of research that's shown that the Mediterranean diet reduces your risk associated with mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And also there have been trials that have taken people who are on a really most, you know, what we call a Western diet and then taught them how to eat according to the Mediterranean style rules or, or guidelines, I think is a better word, and showed that that improved their depression uh, so in people who were depressed. And so there's, there's, and that's, that type of research has been replicated. So I feel really confident about saying, go Mediterranean style first. But then there are people who do that, and they still, they still struggle with mental health issues. And so then I would start to be wondering, well, why is that? And there'd be a whole bunch of different reasons for that. One of them is the one that we've talked about, which is that our food may not be as nourishing for our brain. And so maybe it's not adequately feeding some people who may need more, because we're all different where you know my metabolic needs for nutrients may be quite different from your metabolic yeah. needs my need for zinc might be different from yours so and that that can do with genetics it could be a whole host of factors it could be due to long you know it could be due to being in an environment for example that has more depletion of zinc relative to another environment i mean zinc is probably not a good example for new zealand but our our soils are very depleted in selenium so i could be more depleted in that if that makes sense so it could be those things. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that selenium is the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about being starved for appropriate nutrition. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I know just from my own interest in the subject, and one of my children is studying to become a registered dietitian, and she oh, is a big proponent of all of this and has a huge interest and educates me continually. <laughs> Great, great. Yeah. So there, so that could be, you know, one thing that's going on is even when we're eating well, we're not getting it. But then I would say that there are life things that can also influence our nutritional needs. And one of the ones that I've been really interested in is in stress. And that yeah. is either acute stress or chronic stress. And when I, I got interested in this in the because we had I lived through a whole bunch of earthquakes. In 2010, 2011, our city was rocked by a six it was only a six point two magnitude earthquake, but it was right under our city. And it was massive. And our city got destroyed. And 
and we're still rebuilding. And 185 people died in a, in a few buildings that collapsed. So it was a huge, huge event. And what um, I had done a study, we had another, uh, the first earthquake started in September 2010, and that was a huge one, 7.1. That's not the one that destroyed the city, but it, it gave me an opportunity to ask the question of people who happened to be taking nutrients during that, that earthquake because they were enrolled in our clinical trials. How did they recover, like in terms of their anxiety and stress after experiencing that massive, you know, trauma? And what we learned was that people who happened to be well-nourished getting these nutrients were they, while they got very stressed, they were covered far more quickly than people who weren't. So that was a natural experiment. We don't deliberately, can't, we can't deliberately cause an earthquake in that level of stress. But we learned that from our, our, because I was in that kind of research environment where we could ask that question. So that tells me that you're more likely to overcome a stressor if you're already already well nourished. And yeah, so that was a remarkable finding. Then after the the February earthquake that I just described, the six point, I think two or three, was we then gave people nutrients and looked to see whether or not that helped them overcome the stress associated with having lived through that earthquake and all the subsequent aftershocks. And what we learned was indeed, yes, it helped. So they were more likely to recover than people who weren't taking nutrients. And then we replicated that in a, after a flood that happened in Alberta, Canada. And then again, after a mosque, there was a, we had a, a terrible, atrocious a mosque shooting, a shooting in, a mo- in two mosques yes. in Christchurch. I know that's, you know, unfortunately, that's the norm in the States for those types of events to happen, but really unusual for that to happen in New Zealand. But we had this opportunity again to give people nutrients to see how well they, whether or not it could help them with the recovery associated with being survivors. And it did. So I feel really confident about saying that it does seem like when you're under a lot of stress, your body, what it does, it's it's going to divert all the nutrients to make sure that your fight-flight response works because that's all about survival. And there's very little left for everything else, like your regulation of your sleep and your anxiety and your mood. So we're topping it up at a time when you've got, you're getting depleted. And that I think is one of the most um, exciting res- uh, results of the work that we've done is to show that you need to keep replenishing yourself with these nutrients in order to be able to cope better with what's happening. Something comes to mind as you share this, and this is with regards to like food justice and people who might not necessarily have the resources to purchase these high quality foods that you're speaking of. But what about if we make nutritional supplementation free and available? I know. I mean, that would be wonderful because it may, as I said, uh, it may be that eating good food isn't sufficient, although I think that's a great place to start. Supplementation, unfortunately, isn't typically covered by either your insurance plans or any public health care system. So that is one of the huge, huge (laughs) barriers. That's right. Yet, And I, I, I certainly lobby in New Zealand all the time to get them covered because we pay for drugs, but we don't pay for nutrients. And that's, it's a complicated issue as to why it's like that. But it's probably partially got to do with 
big pharma's uh, lobbying and incredible power. And so they are successful and they, they're going to keep the nutrient supplements out. And so they do, uh, they work very hard at discrediting this kind of work. And that means that there's less of a opportunity to be able to get it onto the to be paid for by government or by insurance plans. So there's a lot of, it's an uphill battle to get this changed. And also nutrients aren't patentable. And that also makes for a more difficult uh, opportunity to get them paid for. Thank you for bringing that up because that is an important point. And then when you, uh, conversely, you look at the research that's been done on D3, for example, for mood regulation, right? Or taking the, um, uh, omega threes or the essential fatty acids and the acids and the yeah. role that that plays in mental health. Or even during the pandemic, some doctors have been prescribing large doses of zinc and melatonin to their COVID yeah. patients. What's that right. about? Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's it's it's great that that kind of work has been done. I I kind of again go, oh, that's just a single nutrient approach. Yes, and there's no reason why you wouldn't. Do, I would say try the experiment of giving the full array of nutrients. Does it have to just be zinc? And so I think it's great that zinc alone is showing to, is being shown to be a benefit. But I would go, well, let's see even see if we can top that up and and get an even greater benefit by giving the full array of nutrients because zinc doesn't operate on its own. So um, that's my my response to well taken. Yeah. So if you were to suggest to the average consumer key ingredients that can be found at the supermarket or at the farmer's market to improve mental health right now, what would you say? Go buy X. Right. So again, no special secret um, superfood. So it's the array; it's the full array. So again, it's it's not it's not hard to to just know. It's I need everything. to eat food. Yeah, it's everything. I, I need to eat food that my great grandmother recognizes. So as food, <laughs> <laughs> so that's and I say I used to say grandmother, but now I think we're we're at a point where it's probably your great grandmother. So uh, that's your your nuts, your seeds, your legumes, your your fresh fruit, and your vegetables your meat from the butcher, your fish, that's what you're, we're talking about. Um, your, whole, your whole grains so that they're not really ultra processed uh, is much better than, than things like your white bread is not going to give you any nourishing whatsoever for your brain. But well, there's the some wonderful breads out there, for example. White substances. If any white food is probably white processed food is not yeah. what we want to be eating, right? Like the exactly. sugar, white flowers. You exactly. Know, and and when you do this, though, when you start to eat those foods, you don't need to worry about reading packages. You don't need to be worried about um, getting, in, you know, how much sugar am I consuming? Because you're you're consuming then your sugar in a natural form. Yeah. You're not consuming it via an injection into a ultra processed food like a, in the form of high fructose corn syrup, which is incredibly bad for us and doesn't provide us with anything really good for at all for for our brain health. So, but by just doing that, you don't. You're I'm I'm not. I'm trying to make it not complicated that you have to read the labels because if you're eating real foods and you're probably, there hopefully aren't there aren't labels. <laughs> there exactly. aren't any labels. Yeah, I got <laughs> so, uh, so, Yeah, I wouldn't be guided by the, you know, the food, you know, by some of the, 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 the labels that are on foods that say this is, you know, low in sugar or low in fat. I, I stay well away from anything that's advertising itself that way. We say in our house, if you can't pronounce it, you probably shouldn't yeah. be eating it. 
I think know? that's a good guideline yeah. overall. Yeah. So, so that's where I would start. And then learning more about the supplements is available also in the book about, you know, when, cause it's so confusing. It's like, well, what do I buy? So we provide all of the evidence-based supplements that have ever been researched for the benefit of mental health. Oh, so it, yeah, it's all in the book. So that's, all in the book. Uh, Let's give it a plug. The better brain. Yeah. <laughs> the better brain. I mean, just give the whole thing. Overcome anxiety, combat depression, and reduce ADHD and stress with nutrition. And I want to plug this online course, this free online course that's available to anybody in any part of the world on edX, and they can enter your name, Julia J. Rucklage, and have access to the course, which is a, a, a public uh, health course on nutrition and mental health. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's bringing this information to anybody who's ready to sit down and learn. I mean, it's, it does take, it's a, it's a time commitment to go through the course, but I've heard a lot, I've had already a lot of great feedback and people are really excited about what they've been learning. So I think it'll be something that everybody can gain from whether you're a, a, a professional trying to f- seek more information. So you feel more confident about working with clients who are struggling with mental health issues or your family member struggling with it, or you, you know, or, or you know someone, I think it's got something for everyone in there. And what I also hear you say that's very important is that the synergistic reaction of these foods when they're eaten together, that, that you know, it's not just you're right. going to go on a kale diet, it's you're going to eat kale and beans and nuts and a exactly. little bit of meat and a little bit of fish and good oils and fats that that that, exactly. that help yes. your brain Forgot and your body. About olive oil. Yes. Good, yeah. Good reminder. Yes. Olive yes. Oil. Fat is our friend. Good quality, high quality mm-hmm. fat is a good yep. thing avocados. Avocados ha- seem to be constantly in season in New Zealand. I'm not sure what happened over the last year, but uh, they're super cheap. And yeah. so that's, yeah. And full of nourishing fats, as you say. Yeah. And, and just so tasty and good for us. And um, I, yeah, I, I love them personally, but you know, it's not about me. It's about everybody else and them, them coming on board with this good nutrition to learn more about your work. Our listeners can also go to the um, www.canterbury.ac.nz. And in the science department, um, there's a profile for you there. Julia Rucklage on Twitter, you're at Julia Rucklage and on Facebook at Mental Health and Nutrition. And once again, that free public health course is available on edX. And I salute you for writing this book and educating us and giving us, empowering us with tools to take charge of our mental health beyond the therapist's couch and beyond the prescription pad. You know, this is just another set of tools. Absolutely. And I, I, I like what you say, which is that it's an empowering people so that they are in control of the change yes. and that there are things that they can do rather than just have to go and see a, a, a professional who's going to be the one who's going to you know dole out the pills that unfortunately haven't helped enough people. And that's the bottom line. True that. And when you look at the research about the efficacy of um, mm-hmm. pharmacological pills antidepressants, they say that lifestyle interventions, the research that I have read, that lifestyle interventions, including exercise and nutrition, nature bathing, so on and so forth, and talk therapy work better than the pills. Exactly. Yep. So why not do that? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. This was fabulous. I had such a good time with you. Oh, good. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest, Dr. Judson Brewer and Professor Julia 
Jay Rucklidge, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.